0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at bite.com. That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it, too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the show. Quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, leave us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts, or don't, because, you know, people... Maybe you want to know about the show, and that's the best way to find out about us. On the show today, Sarah Dash, president and CEO of the Alliance for Health Policy. AHP, or it's called The Alliance, sounds daunting. They're a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to informing policymakers on critical health policy decisions. Sounds kind of wonky, but it's super awesome because, you know, industry... Puts way too much burden on patients like us to navigate the healthcare system. So listen in as we geek out over covalent bonds, given her chemistry background, how 20 something staffers run the country, and the possibility of ungeeking health policy for the layperson. Enjoy the show. Sarah, thank you so much for coming out of patience. It's been a long time coming. We developed this bff them fairly quickly in the last couple of months, and I'm absolutely, like, with with unabated curiosity, like, what is this, and how are you, you, and what transpired to make this all happen? With those questions, I do want to start with one in particular. Esther's versus Vanderworld's forces. Go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, Matthew, this is, this is why I agreed to come on your show because like from, from day one, we we're laughing and, and you're finding the humor in things, which is great.
0: Right. For the listeners who are confused, right? So you have a background in chemistry. Let's just start the answer to that question.
1: It's a great question. You know, so I, I started off, I was, a, I was pre-med, I was at MIT and, uh, and I'll tell you, I was in the biology lab one day, we had one of the, um, one of the other students like burst into tears and had a real freak out because her lab was like something went wrong. And it was, you know, so, so she had to stay like 15 minutes later to finish the lab. And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be around these, these neurotic people. I'm like, what's going to happen to you the first time your patient dies? Yeah. And that. You, like are pre-med. <laughs> and I don't know, I found the chemistry department and they were just cooler. They were friendlier. I mean, no knock look. I am so grateful to all of our scientists and all of the scientists that have worked so hard to get us up to this point and create the vaccine. I mean, I have an awe for what they are studying and what they are doing. But at the time, I just thought, you know, these are, these are cool people and let me try this. And, and I'll tell you, I had a professor, his name was, um, his name was Dan Kemp and he was, uh, he was a legendary professor at MIT. He was the professor of organic chemistry and he made organic chemistry seem fun. It was like playing. I mean, he had these legendary notebooks that, um, you know, kind of workbooks that all the students would have. And so I I took organic chemistry up through the third level, and it never seemed like work to me. It was fun. It was playing. It was looking at, you know, the way the molecules kind of Um, bonded and unformed and and how all of that stuff worked and it was so it was really fun it it never really felt like work to me up until maybe you know like the last semester of the last class when I had to really work harder to get my head around stuff but but um not that I didn't work hard but it was just it was fun work
0: no when I read that in your LinkedIn profile it just triggered AP chemistry was the only one I failed and they lost me (laughs) at covalent bonds (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) You know, and it's so funny because if you asked me, so I think there's a real difference between the organic chemistry people and the inorganic chemistry or the physical chemistry, because I tried the the physical chemistry, the inorganic stuff that kind of baffled me more. And so I don't know if that's just different, the different way, you know, our brains work or or what have you, but the bonding and unbonding, and maybe it's because I'm like, in fact, a really a very relational person, which kind of makes me question why I went to, place like MIT in the first place sometimes but I'm very relational so you think about things like oh okay I I know a bunch of people and this is more like a hydrogen bond because that's a very weak bond and you know hydrogen atoms are kind of going off and doing their thing and bonding with this and bonding with that and then you have really strong bonds right like the NOF those are like your best 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 friends you know that that you can never part with
0: This geeking out portion of adaptation is brought to you by Dow Chemical, but not brought to you by Dow Chemical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I was going to be talking about that. Anyway, check out the periodic table. It's fun. It's fresh. It's good. (laughs) Teach your kids.
0: Teach your kids.
1: Yes. Teach your kids. Teach your children. But – I had the good fortune and and it's like peering into sort of the universe, how the universe is formed, right? Chemistry. And then you get deeper and deeper into it and you get into like quantum mechanics and all these things, which, you know, for a long time I felt like a failure because I um, actually did not do very well in quantum mechanics. And um, it was taught by this professor, Sylvia Sayre, who I was, I was really impressed because there's a, here's a woman professor you know, at MIT teaching quantum mechanics, and so um, for 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 a while in my life it was kind of one of the great shames of my life that I just didn't do very well, and <laughs> that was part of what started to uh, turn my mind to okay, a
0: different kind of chemistry,
1: a different kind of chemistry. Maybe I need something that kind of bridges the science and the humanities, and and so indeed that's actually what my major ended up as um, as a humanities and science major, and uh, and I branched out and I went and I took a class. At the Harvard Kennedy School on on religion, politics, and public policy, which was great fun, and uh, and I, and then I was very happy that semester because I I, I, I branched out and and kind of you know took more more humanities classes, and, and there you are, and so then kind of ended up in a translational role because I always thought, look, the, all this hard work people do in the lab, and I mean, you've got to appreciate the people who are in those biology labs, you know, working on their DNA gels and it takes a certain amount of time and they have to go back in at two o'clock in the morning and switch this thing and switch that thing and People they work so 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 hard all of their lives to discover something, and I mean, you know, like these vaccines we're dealing with right now on COVID. These are the these are the the end result of years of of work, including by by a woman, I might add, um, who who really was a pioneer in the whole mRNA technology. But they work so a hard. woman of
0: color too.
1: And and there's a woman right, a woman of color on the team at NIH who is who is absolutely one of the leaders and in, in making it making it happen. And you know. But, the, but here's the thing, like you work so hard on the science, you work so hard on it, you get it right. you know. The, I mean, the, the results with these vaccines, 95%, it's 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 beyond, I think, what anybody initially had hoped for. It's really beyond our, our sort of wildest hopes as far as how efficacious they are. And, and of course, they are safe. But then you've got to translate it and you've got to translate it into the policy arena. So look at the conversations that are happening now around distribution of the vaccines, the last mile distribution. My husband literally as we speak was on the phone cause he's a teacher trying to get an appointment, you know? And so it's like, okay, am I gonna go here? Am I gonna go there? Am I gonna go to the next county over? Where am I gonna get my vaccine? It's translating the trust because we have longstanding trust issues because of the horrors of what medical science did in some cases to the African American community, the Black community, like with you know with Tuskegee and, and others, and they haven't forgotten that. There's a trust issue there, and 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 there's folks working really hard to overcome that. Um, my my board chair, in fact, um, Dr. Reed Tuxen, is heads up the Black Coalition Against COVID, and and is working really hard in in, in these communities to um, to deal. Deal with the, um you know and really engage the communities and sort of under helping them understand like and helping to, to engage but you can't just engage people at the last minute you, you gotta engage people from the beginning so there's well, a lot of there's a lot of translation that needs to happen right and and that's that's what I've always found exciting and that's that's what I got into.
0: Right. So from the how a bill becomes a law, how does a chemist become a staffer? <laughs> yeah.
1: You know so there's so many different ways to affect policy in the policy process, and some of those are are doing the research, and then some of them are you know just being kind of the pure the pure politician. I always kind of saw myself as somewhat in between as sort of a translator and bridge builder and I wanted to be I wanted to be close to the the policy process i you know uh when I graduated from my my master's in public health and and I focused on health policy. I think I didn't really know what health policy was. I mean, cause health policy is so big. And public health people kind of talk about health in all policies, which means, you know, if you're building a road, you should think about building a bike trail too, because that's healthier. And, you know, if you're dealing with energy policy, you're also dealing with health because because of the air that we breathe and and so on. So it, it can get really overwhelming. But what I knew is I wanted to be closer to the the decision-making, if you will. And before I went to the Hill, to Capitol Hill, I had been working on campaigns and I was in a consulting a small consultancy and we actually worked on policy platforms for a number of different elected officials. So, so that was an interesting mix of what's the policy and then how do you communicate it? And then how do you think about different constituencies? Um, And I did some of that work at the state policy level too. So it was kind of a natural move for me uh, to go to the Hill, but I will tell you, and and I I have to put this in because I have to talk about like work-life balance in every conversation, because I think it's really important. Go forth. I, I was sort of at a crossroads. I had worked on some campaigns and I thought, well, maybe I want to work on the hill, because everyone that I see who's really cool, who has a resume that I really like, has at least done, you know, some time on the hill. But I'm also really interested in this healthcare quality stuff. And I maybe I should go back and I should get my Six Sigma, you know, black belt in healthcare quality improvement and, and kind of work in a hospital or or maybe I should get my PhD. And I was kind of at a crossroads. And I sat down, and this is also the importance of mentorship and sponsorship too, I, I will say. so. And, and and at the time, I also had a two-year-old. So I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. This just seems like it's going to be impossible to to go on the Hill. And I met with somebody who is still in my life, who's still a, a mentor to me. and And we sat down in the cafeteria in one of the Senate office buildings. She was like, you can do it. You can come to the Hill. Look, look over there and pointed over to her colleague who happened to be bringing in her brand new baby to uh, visit, you know, and, and she's on the, the committee staff. And, and I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can do this. And she's like, let me send her resume over. And I interviewed with, with an office and I didn't get that job. But I remember I, as I was walking away uh, from the, the, the Capitol, I looked back and I said, I'm going to be back here. I'm going to keep trying. And then I did. And then I really launched a full out you know, job search to, um, to try to be a staffer. And I was lucky enough to land a job um, over on the House side with, with Congresswoman DeLauro, who represents um, New Haven and, and surrounding areas in Connecticut. And that, that was my
0: start. So let's talk about lessons learned. I've met a lot of staffers. In fact, I say this with all degree of love. My very first time going to the Hill to speak to, I think it was a, a state senator at some point, I was greeted by like, like a nine-year-old kid. And it felt like a nine-year-old kid. And then I someone's like, oh yeah, the government's run by like college students. I'm like, no, it's not. And yes, it is. And is it really? And <laughs> how is this a thing when the government's run by people in their early twenties? And like, Shouldn't we be more progressive as a country if the country's run by 20-somethings that are talking to 80-year-old white guys and really a revolution? Did you find that aha moment when you got there that <laughs> this is really how the sausage is made?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And, um, you know, you're you're right to point out it's that dichotomy between the... The young staffers and, and, of course, members who tend to skew older, although the, the diversity, I think, among members is starting to change. Look, being a staffer is not – it's an amazing job. It's an awesome responsibility. I mean, I always said, if I ever start taking this for granted, like, just boot me out. Just fire me like that day because then, I, then I'm not doing my job. Because you're representing, I mean, you're there, people are coming to you, people, you know, people like you, people who have, have suffered with cancer, people who are, um, you know, they need like a wastewater treatment plant in their district. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're coming to you to ask you for stuff that they need, right? Like that's how our government works. But you're right. So much of the work is done by the staffers. And before I dive into my answer anymore, though, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, I just want to pause for a second and say how much my heart goes out to the staffers who were on the Hill, um, on, on January 6th and on that terrible, terrible day, um, or who were, you know, working from home and living vicariously and worried for their colleagues. And, you know, I, my heart was, was certainly there, um, with them. These are awesome jobs, but they're often thankless jobs and they work for very little pay at kind of the whim of the member. And some members are amazing to work for. I had really lucky, um, I was really lucky to have great bosses, but they're not all great. (laughs) Um, They're human and and sometimes their tempers flare and it's it's not always super easy to work there. And you kind of go and, and you look for a job on the hill and there's stacks and stacks of resumes, right? That people are combing through. And so like, you're lucky to get that job. And so you're not always... Like picking and choosing. It's like whoever's giving you a job is giving you a job. And so you start off, and maybe you're a staff assistant, right? And you're like just out of college, and you're driving the member around, and you're answering phones and getting yelled at by constituents. And then maybe you work your way up, and you're a legislative correspondent. And then you're th- that—that's the person that is often the main person who's drafting the letters for the office, or they're, you know, they're in charge of tracking all the mail and keeping track when there's a letter on a on a big important issue and how many pros and how many cons and that sort of thing. And and as you get to the Senate side, you get more and more LCs who who are handling multiple different issues. So, on the House side, though, they're. There is often, you know, one LC handling every single issue that comes into that office. Then you work your way up the chain and maybe you're a legislative aide. Maybe they hand you a little bit of a legislative portfolio. Uh, and then you're, uh, if you do well with that, you might get a job as an LA, a legislative assistant. Again, on the House side, you're handling multiple issues. Um, on the Senate side, you know, you get to specialize a little bit more because those offices are bigger. And then, you know, then you got your legislative director, your. Um, you know, chief of staff. And then there's different fancy titles because oftentimes people give sort of titles instead of money. So you might get to be, you know, the health policy advisor or the senior legislative analyst or the, you know, legislative aide or, or what have you. Um, and so, you know, counsel, if you're a lawyer, you might get to be counsel. So, and then there's committee staff. And so each, I, I'm explaining this because in case people, in case your listeners are are curious, but it actually really affects the work, right? So then the committees, the committees of jurisdiction, You got Senate Finance. Uh, I'm just talking about healthcare here. You got Finance. You got the HELP Committee, um, mainly uh, on the Senate side. You've got on the House side, you've got Ways and Means, Energy and Commerce. to some extent, the education and uh, workforce committee, which used to be called Ed and Labor, when I was back when I was there, and then each of those members has committee staff, and then there's all kinds of other committees. And speaking of cancer, you know, the Appropriations Committee is an incredibly important committee. They're the committee that's funding the NIH, you know, the CDC. They're they're appropriating the funds um, for those for those um, those agencies. So. you know, it's a whole ecosystem. It's a whole ecosystem. And you're there and you're advising the member on how to vote. You're, you're writing memos for them. If, you know, I remember (laughs) one time I had to, when I was on the Senate side, I had to write a memo because, um, Jerry West, the great basketball player, Jerry West was coming for a meeting with my boss. And I was like, okay, who's that? And I had to Google it. You know, and I'm like, oh, wow, he's actually like a really famous basketball player. And that was him on the NBA logo at one at one time. Um, You know, but there there I am. That tells you how much I know about sports. So with apologies to to Mr. West.
0: (laughs) Back with our guest after the break. So the Alliance for Health Policy, or as you call it, the Alliance, which sounds very rebel Alliance, but you're on the good side of history, and I get that part, this comes down to picking your battles. So if you're really going to, I guess, poke the bear, in a sense, in a nice way, but play nice in the sandbox to get what you want, on behalf of human beings that get sick, that don't want to be sick, and what do they need when they don't know what they need? What is the full force brunt, like the giant log that you swing at the castle door in medieval, medieval ages. Like, what is that of, of AHP?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. See, you're now you're talking to a Game of Thrones fan too. Yes.
0: Um,
1: absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you. And you know, the Alliance for Health Policy, we've been around for almost 30 years. We were we started off actually being called Alliance for Health Reform, and that's why we sort of kept Alliance when we when we changed our name. Because the, the thing is that health policy. It happens every day in, in big and small ways. It's not always like a great big reform bill, which as you know, it, get, it gets harder and harder to, to pass something, the, the bigger and bigger it gets. So, you know, look, the whole point of it was to be and is to be an unbiased convener, a, an educator. You mentioned those young health staffers, right? They, I mean, they don't all have degrees in health policy. Some of them do. But they all they are making really important decisions. So I wouldn't say we have a a battle, a battle ram as you will, if you will, right? But it's it's knowledge and understanding. It's being able to say, look, if you're gonna fix the car, you gotta know how the engine works. And so we bring experts. Uh, from both sides of the aisle, from across the different sectors to really talk to them, to help them understand kind of the basic issues, but also the, you know, try to help answer questions. These are smart, motivated people who who want to learn and who want to do right by, um, you know, by their bosses, certainly, and kind of know the answers to things.
0: Is it true, and you're going to confirm my confirmation bias, that you can throw 150 patients on the Hill to yell and scream about something, but it just takes one story to convince something.
1: That's absolutely true. You know, stories are so important. And first of all, and patience are so important. And I just, again, I want to say huge respect to those people who take the time. Of course, now nobody can really visit the Hill, but, you know, (laughs) who take the time to leave their homes, to travel to D.C., to come and speak to their elected representatives about their experiences. It's so important. And the power of a story, it it really stays with you. As a as a as a staffer, um, now of course you need the strategy, you know, to go with that. But all too often, you know, people are are kind of in a bubble um, on Capitol Hill, and and you know they haven't had the life experiences that always that you know folks outside have. I mean, how can how can one person have all those life experiences, right? So finding a way to connect um, that's that's really important.
0: Yeah. So this comes back to what role do patients play? in policy, because I don't know if it's been fully, I'll say, exploited in the nice way. Like, how are patients, our are human beings? I'll say, you know, we're people that are shopping in a store we never wanted to shop in. The shit happens store of cancer, rare disease, whatever it is in that space where, you know, what you did, you can't expect to know what you shouldn't expect, all that stuff
1: all that stuff and you know it, you mentioned the analogy to shopping and i think it's it's interesting that sometimes patients get called consumers and there's this whole you know debate about should people be called patients or consumers or just people and should it be called patient centered care or person centered care and you know look the fact is we've all been patients we're all going to be at some point or another and to your point like sometimes you really get the crappy end of the deal and you're like like you said, you're shopping in the store. You didn't want to sh- shop in. So just to say that we need to be designing a system around human beings and people, and not like sort of having this otherness of, of the way we talk about um, patients. So you know, what role do do they play in policy? I think that um, you know, look, there's all there's numbers of patient advocacy groups. They often sort of tend to form around. Um, different diseases or different illnesses, and then sometimes you'll have sort of overarching groups that deal with patient or consumer issues more broadly, like affordability uh, and, and and things like that. There are different ways to plug in, but I'm going to say, just from my vantage point, I don't think there's enough ways for patients to plug in. I think that um, the policy community needs to work harder to provide that access because... There is a power imbalance. And when you're sick or you've been sick or you have a family member with a condition, you know, like there's enough shit to deal with. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast?
0: Oh, hell yes. Oh,
1: okay, great. Because I, good.
0: Okay. <laughs> I should have led with that when we kicked it off.
1: That's awesome. Um, Because I can't swear around my toddler anymore. So I'm just going to take it out all here. So <laughs>
0: Don't you hate when they get sentient and know when you can say bad words? When they're meatloaves that don't understand anything, you can just swear away. You
1: can, I know. So now I have to censor Kids myself. Kids ruin
0: everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> children are darling. No, they really are our future. And and I mean, you talk about children's health advocacy. I yes. mean, my goodness, because children don't vote. You know, um, there's the child health insurance program, and then there's the Medicaid program that covers, did you know it covers over of the births in the country.
0: That's crazy. No one knows that. I mean, well, should everyone need to know these things? That's a question, right? You are the sausage getting made in the best sense of like how that's usually a negative thing to talk about. But to what extent does the average person who just complains and wants a boogeyman need to know about this stuff? And like you started out with like disinformation and, and confirmation bias and the media. I mean, without going down that rabbit hole, you know, right. how do you substantiate like we're the good guys, we're doing this in your behalf and here's what we're getting done.
1: That's right. And that's where the organizing factor comes in, right, of the, of the patient advocacy groups and you know, you can't, like, you can't be all things to all people and patients, people, human beings who, you know, want something to get done, like, can't, we put too much burden on them. We put too much burden on ourselves as humans to navigate the healthcare system. And that's, that's where, like, it's got to change. And I think that's where the challenge is though, because the pain in the ass, like things that happen to each of us as patients happens, like hospital room by hospital room, you know, appointment by appointment, waiting room by waiting room, and <laughs> so how how do you get people to to really factor in? I'll give you an example. Uh, my my first job in the D.C. area was um, was actually at the National Cancer Institute, and I got to work in what was then called the Office of Liaison Activities. It's now got a different name, I believe, but um, but they had a program there where they actually had a mechanism to bring people who were you know, advocates for people with cancer uh, and different kinds of cancer into the inner workings of the NCI so they could sit on peer review committees that were actually reviewing the science and they could sit as full voting members or so they could review you know, publications from a patient perspective. And it took an infrastructure to run that program. It took convincing – You know, some of the scientists were – Embraced it, and others were like, "Okay, patients, yeah, okay, I guess I'll, you know, work with one." So it, it takes a whole infrastructure and a whole kind of system of of influence to really embrace and bring in the patient voice in a meaningful way, and that's that's the kind of thing that needs to happen, whether it's on, you know, quality improvement committees, you know, those kinds of things, and, and there's different legal um, requirements for different Types of entities. So like federally qualified health centers or community health centers have, you know, they have to have a certain percentage of like community members on their board. But those are the kinds of mechanisms, like it needs to work from the top down. And, and I don't even like top down and bottom up. That just is very condescending. I think it's got to be a team effort. Agreed. That's, that's my point.
0: Let me tell you my PCORI story, and this is – I didn't mean to rhyme like Dr. Seuss, but for the cheapest in the background, <laughs> PCORI – You got a book title right there. No, PCORI is like the acronym that doesn't need to be an acronym, but it's like – it's the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Way too many syllables to describe what it does, but I have a weird story that I want your feedback on. Yeah. My PCORI story, again, rhyming by not rhyming, was I was invited to be on a patient committee like you said. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to be sort of brought into the wonky world, the good wonky world. But we spent two years debating, how do you redo the pain scale in oncology? And Mm. it's like, you know, I think the challenge was that people see how the stock market goes up is better. But when a pain scale goes up, it's not better. So how do you make the pain scale where down is better? And Mm -hmm. over two years, they were going through this. And at the end of the day, they wound up putting the words down is better on the questionnaire. Hmm. It was uh, two years (laughs) to come up with like, how do patients know that down is better? Because (laughs) less pain is down. But better money is up, right? It's this like if you think about it like a consumer, that to me was my big lesson. And you mentioned this before. Where is the consumer advocacy voices helping the smart, nerdy, jargony people figure out what it means to a consumer? So from the yeah. perspective that you guys kind of are an intermediary in a sort of that What can we point to in the three years of the alliance existing that we can like, wow, this is the thing that matters and we're going to invest in this?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you shared that story because, God, the, you know, and PCORI, I'm so, you know, PCORI is so great that PCORI exists as an entity to really talk about patient centered outcomes research. But we need more things like that. We need more. Every single entity across the board with the Food and Drug Administration has, you know, um, is working on patient-centered drug development, everyone's got to be focused on that. And, and the companies do, too, because at the end of the day, like, we're all kind of consumers of this, right, um, whether directly or through our tax dollars or what have you. You know, Alliance for Health Policy, so since I've since I've been there and, and all throughout, like, we're all about bringing um, evidence-based but also diverse experiences, lived experiences to the table. So first of all, I think the way we found each other was because we did a series uh, last year that we titled Voice of the Patient. And part of it was to explore all of these different elements of how do patients and their families and caregivers actually get involved in the systems and structures that influence how they experience the healthcare system. And I thought it was really important to do that because in case you hadn't noticed, our healthcare system is a little bit stretched, like, to the brink and kind of falling apart in some places. I had and not
0: noticed that. No, I had you not hadn't, noticed I just, that.
1: FYI, <laughs> 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 we're having some issues. But And and for some people who experience the healthcare system, they're like, well, yeah, duh, like, I could have told you that. I mean, you know, um, it hasn't really been working for me for a while, right? And so we've had these these huge disparities. So – I thought we, you know, as we think about rebuilding our healthcare system, we've got to incorporate the, again, I'll say the patient voice, the person voice, right? And so what we do at the Alliance, I mean, our bread and butter is we put these panels together and we we um, we do look for a broad uh, set, like I said, of experiences, perspectives, life experiences. And we've been, and I hope it's visible to the outside world, but certainly internally, we've been really making an effort to find not just the usual suspects, you know, the health policy wonks and the experts from inside the Beltway who have wonderful sets of knowledge and, and some of whom have certainly patient um, stories themselves. But look all across the country and find those people who can bring their voices, their experiences. And we, we really work hard to look at um, not only you know bringing the patient voice, but gender diversity, racial diversity, um, you know, race and ethnic diversity, like all the different kinds of diversity that you need to really tell the complete
0: story. That's amazing. Sarah Dash, president and CEO at the Alliance for Health Policy. We didn't get to your COVID webinar series for part two of our I'm making it a series now. Matt and Sarah do some kind of crazy (laughs) dance. Um
1: well do it. Yeah. Check us out at check us out at allhealthpolicy.org. You can follow along. We did do a COVID webinar series and you know, I hate to say it, but you can almost like press start and, and watch the whole series again. And we're almost at that. We started that COVID webinar series. I'll just tee up part two if that's all right. We started that series um three days after I, I told people to not come back into our office, uh, three business days. And, uh, we, we, we were out of the gate and, you know, we had, we had govern- we had an epidemiologist from university of Kentucky when there were 5,000 cases, 5,000 cases in the United States. You know, we're now hearing within weeks, we may hit 500,000 deaths. It, so it's just, it's a tragedy of, of epic proportions. We've got to do better. Um, we we've got to focus on this. We've got to focus on our public health infrastructure that serves us all. It, it just shows you just how central our healthcare and healthcare system and public health is to all of our well being and to our economy and to our prosperity as a country. So my hope is that we can really um, push that conversation forward. We're certainly planning to push that conversation forward over the next um, year, and and I look forward. Um, I hope I hope I get invited back, even though I said like one swear word, and I hope I get invited back and we can talk more about that.
0: (laughs) Well, to be continued, allhealthpolicy.org and to Vanderworld's forces. Thank you very much.
1: Amen. Thanks. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary.